But please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is where we are going to be continuing our study of the charismatic gifts that God has given to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12, I want to direct your attention once again to the opening verses of Romans chapter 12. I love these verses so much, who knows, maybe we'll be reading them uh, at the beginning of every sermon for the next six months. It says there, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love a verse like this. It is such a good summary verse of what the Christian life is all about. God does this for us in a number of places throughout Scripture. He'll give a general command that lays out the big picture. In the Old Testament, God gave very many specific commands. Some people count over 600 commands in the Old Testament. But when asked to summarize those Old Testament commands, the Lord Jesus Christ was able to boil them down to just two general commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets, according to Jesus and his apostles. When God gives us a general command, it's it's a great way for us to, to look at the big picture. But one thing I want to caution you about here at the beginning of our service is beware of those who use the general commands of Scripture in order to import specific commands from the culture. Did you catch that? Watch out for people who use the general commands of Scripture in order to import specific commands from the world. We just read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so the contrast between the world and the mind of Christ is a sharp contrast that is drawn in Scripture. And so we can't just listen to a preacher who says, well, we're supposed to love God and love our neighbor, and let me tell you how to love God and love your neighbor. It's what CNN is telling you to do. It's what Fox News is telling you to do. It's what any part of our culture, as there are many different parts of our culture, are telling you what to do. No, we don't inform the command to love your neighbor as yourself with our culture. We use the scripture to inform that command. God has given us very many specific commands in the New Testament to show us what does it mean in order to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not only the command to love your neighbor, but other general commands can also be abused in this way. The Bible commands us to do justice. And then the Bible defines for us what justice is. We don't receive our definition of justice from from any school of thought outside of the Scripture. And the, the biblical justice is justice. And that's the justice that we are commanded to do. So don't get fooled into adopting worldly practices by some preacher who says, well, this is what it means in order to do justice, or this is what it means in order to love your neighbor. Now, let's look at the specific commands in the Scripture that will guide us into loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself, according to truth, and not according to the ever-shifting sands of man's opinion. Amen? One other command I have to mention here at the beginning is go therefore and make disciples. Going therefore, make disciples is the great commission in Matthew chapter 28 verse 19. 
And how do we fulfill that great commission? What exactly did Jesus mean when he said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded? Well, that's what the rest of the New Testament lays out for us. That's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the letters of Paul, through the letters of Peter, through the letters of John, so that we can establish saints in the doctrine of Jesus Christ as given by the apostles. You have to beware of theologians, Christian teachers, who will try to import commands into the Christian life that are not coming from the epistles. And they'll say, well, it's just part of the Great Commission. It's just part of the general command. Show it to me in the text. Show it to me in the letters of the apostles of Jesus Christ, and then I will do it. But if it's not in here, don't add to what God has said. And also, don't take away from what God has said. God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. There's a foundation for the Christian church in the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. And we have the words of Paul. We have the words of Peter. Let's listen to our Lord Jesus Christ through his holy apostles. Now, with that warning at the beginning of our message, that is what leads us into verses 6 through 8 on our discussion of the spiritual gifts. Because as Paul undertakes to define the specifics of living as a holy sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God, the first thing he mentions here in Romans is to make sure that you are serving the church of God. Make sure that you are building up the bride of Christ. Make sure that you are doing your part in the body in order for the church to reach spiritual maturity. And we all have different gifts. That's the emphasis we've been looking at here in Romans 12. The different members of the body function differently as God has designed us to function. We have one faith. We have one doctrine. We have one Lord. We have this great unifier in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the unity that we have in Christ is what brings our diversity into purpose. The world is preaching diversity for diversity's sake. We do not preach diversity for diversity's sake. We preach diversity for Christ's sake. We preach all things for Christ's sake. You know, I, I saw a, a saying, and you guys are probably familiar with it, art for art's sake. And art for art's sake is not all bad. It's not a terrible thing to say because what the person who says art for art's sake is trying to correct is the abuse of art in order to promote some agenda, Right? When art is used for propaganda, when art is used for political power, when art is co-opted in order to foist upon you some worldview, some narrative, as we see happening with all the art around us, right, then a, a statement, art for art's sake, starts to sound good. I'd like to get the art separated from this political agenda. But that's not enough. It's not enough. It's not sufficient. It's good, but it's not sufficient. Art, for Christ's sake, is sufficient. That's a sufficient statement. And same thing with diversity. Diversity for Christ's sake. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory in the church now and forevermore. In the arts, in the diversity, everything is for Christ's sake. And so you have been created, special, unique, in order to create, in order to work, in order to do, in order to act. And God is most concerned in the New Testament, about your actions within the church. Because what is the work that God is doing in the world today? 
We heard about it earlier when Jerry was sharing about the work that God did in saving the drug dealer. What is the work that God is doing? He's doing the work of building the church. And so your life is going to be evaluated by how you have built the church. You want to be doing God's work? You want to be participating in the work of the Lord? Then be involved with what Christ is building. And this is what he's building, a holy temple in the Lord. And so use your talents, use your gifts, use the grace that God has given to you, the spiritual ability in order to act for the common good, the common good of the saints. That's what we're talking about. Let's go ahead and read the text again this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, continuing where we left off last time. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Last week we were able to cover the first three, prophecy, service, and teaching. Prophecy, you recall, we said is not a current gift in the church, but it is a gift of direct revelation and that communicating that revelation of God to the church was part of the apostolic period of the church. It was associated with the apostles. It was part of that foundational period and is no longer operative in the church today. But the other gifts that follow in this list are gifts that would describe the ministry of the church today. Not an all-inclusive list, not an exhaustive list, and not even a list that you should obsess about finding which one you are, but instead, the lists of the gifts in the New Testament, I believe the proper way to use them is just as an example of the various types of ministries that go on in the body of Christ. And I have some scriptural support for this because all the lists of the gifts in the New Testament are different. And even Peter's approach to listing the gifts is quite different from Paul's approach to listing the gifts. We read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 4 about how there are diverse gifts in the body, and Peter just put them into two categories, he who speaks and he who serves. And so there's lots of different ways to categorize things. There's lots of different ways to think about things. And so the scripture reveals to us that we have spiritual abilities, we have spiritual graces. Don't get too caught up on the categorization, but instead focus on just doing what God has enabled you to do in the church. As we talked about last week as a matter of review, Everybody is involved in the ministry in various ways. Just like in a household, each member of the family is involved with different aspects of that household. I am learning, but I'm not a student. My kids are learning, and they are students, because that's their major job right now. I will cook a meal, but that doesn't make me a chef. It doesn't even make me the house cook. I do a little bit of cooking, I do a little bit of cleaning, I do a little bit of learning, I do a little bit of driving. I do lots of things, but I still focus on one thing, the job of preaching. My wife does many things, and all of that is a part of her job of being a homemaker and a mother. And so we all have our focus, and don't get so focused on your focus that you don't do anything else, but also don't get so focused on something else that you don't get to do what God has really designed you to do in the church. If you allow yourself to become busy with all these ministries that are not the ministry God has called you to do, well, that's not good for the body because the body isn't receiving the blessing of what God has really strengthened you to do. And it's not good for you because you're going to get frustrated and tired. But when you're doing what God made you to do, focusing on that, then it benefits others and it brings joy to 
the soul. That's why Paul says, the one who serves should serve. The one who teaches should teach. The one who exhorts should exhort. Let's talk a little bit about exhortation in specific. The gift of exhortation, as Paul talks about it here, again, we don't know exactly how to define each one of these because he doesn't give us a definition. We just see how the word is used in the New Testament. We see it in a list and be able to compare it with other items in the list. And so we do our best to understand exactly what Paul had in mind when he lists these gifts. And from what we can tell, the gift of exhortation is a speaking gift. That seems fairly obvious, right? So this is in the category of speaking gifts that 1 Peter was talking about, but it's differentiated in Paul's thinking, his categories, from the gift of teaching because the exhorter isn't so much focused on teaching you things, but instead the exhorter is more focused on encouraging you to do the things that you already know and believe. All right? So the church not only needs to grow in its knowledge of doctrine, but it also needs to grow in its practice of that doctrine. And so some teachers will have a more exhortative focus. Some preachers will have a more exhortation focus. Some teachers and preachers will be more skilled at at just the instruction in the doctrine itself. And these are various ministries that God has given to the church. As I said earlier, when Jerry stands up here, and shares with you stories, he's exhorting us, he's encouraging us. He's not teaching us anything that we don't already know and believe, but instead his spirit is encouraging us by his own encouragement in seeing what God is doing in the world. So this idea of encouragement, exhortation, this is a speaking gift in the church, and it's not only done in the pulpit, but it's done anywhere that we're talking with one another. The word for exhortation is a a word that indicates somebody who comes alongside and and speaks the right word at the right time to someone else. I like the proverb in the Old Testament that said, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word fitly spoken, a word that is spoken at the right time in the right place. It's just a beautiful thing. And so God has given among the church people with that spiritual gift to be able to just say the right thing at the right time in order to encourage the person in their heart. So be using that speaking gift if that is your main ministry. You have a number of examples of this going on in the New Testament, but let's move on to the next gift in the list, the gift of giving. The fifth one that Paul mentions is in the ESV, translated as the one who contributes. The one who contributes is the giver. Now, those who have the gift of giving... We see this concept developed in the New Testament, and that's how we want to understand the ministry. We don't just take a word out of a list and then develop our own ideas about what it means, but instead we look at, well, what kind of giving was there going on in the New Testament? And what types of things were people giving to, and how were they giving? And the Bible has a lot to say about giving. Now, I don't do a lot of preaching on giving, but whenever I get to a passage on it, I'll teach that passage. So, the Bible teaches that Those who minister the gospel as a full-time calling are worthy of financial support. This is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, and also what he writes in Galatians 6, verse 6. So those who are called into full-time gospel ministry, whether as pastors or teachers or evangelists and church planters, missionaries, all kinds of full-time ministry work, that there is an importance to this job that it requires financial support. If there's any job in the world as important, it is the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it's not something that we say, well, you know, 
that has to be completely volunteer. Well, you know, it is volunteer, but unpaid volunteer is what I mean. And so the Bible repeatedly emphasizes this in the New Testament. Traveling preachers in 3 John verses 5 through 8, which would be kind of like our modern idea of missionary, were called to be supported by the Apostle John. The work of evangelists, like Paul's own evangelist church planting ministry, was supported by the Philippians. And Paul writes about that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. But supporting full-time gospel workers is not the only giving that goes on in the church, but also we find in the New Testament the example of believers in one region giving to support believers in another region because of poverty and persecution. We have this example beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, among other places that refer to this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And I'm not going to do a full message on 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, but I do want you to turn there. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We'll look at a few instructions here to the church regarding giving. Now we as a church, a lot of our giving goes to our meeting place. And the meeting place here, well, you know, you've got to pay for the utilities and you've got to pay for upkeep and you've got to pay for maintenance and insurance and all those things that go into having this meeting place for us. And the early church didn't spend a lot of money on meeting places. Instead, what they would do is they would meet in the homes of people in the congregation. So you'd have perhaps a wealthy member of the congregation who had a large home and so he could have everybody over and they'd have church in people's houses. Or if the weather was good, find a public place and just meet out inside in the park. They would do something along those lines. But we're wealthy enough and privileged enough that, that we can put our money together and have a meeting place so that you don't have to have all of us into your home every week. And we appreciate that. We like our meeting place. There's nothing in the Bible against these meeting places. But you see in the New Testament the example of giving to those who are in poverty, especially when we're talking about believers, here in 2 Corinthians chapters. 8 and 9. And I want you to look at just a few verses with me. Look at verse 2 in chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. Paul writes about the churches in Macedonia who are giving to the churches in Jerusalem. And the churches in Macedonia were themselves experiencing persecution. And he says, in a severe test of affliction, these churches of Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their extreme Poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So here, what I want you to see is that you don't have to have a lot of money in order to give. The churches in Macedonia were themselves poor, but out of their love for the saints in Jerusalem, they still gave out of their poverty for those saints. And so if you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm not a millionaire, so I don't have the gift of giving, that's wrong. You don't have to have a lot to have the gift of giving. And in fact, the gift that comes from a poor person can have more spiritual impact on the person who receives it than the gift that comes from a rich person. This is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the widow's mite. That she gave more because she gave all that she had. She gave out of her poverty. And it means more when somebody who doesn't have a lot gives to you than somebody who has a lot and gives to you and doesn't really notice that what they've lost, that the sacrifice means something. And that's what we're talking about in spiritual things. We're talking about the spiritual meaning behind it. We're not just talking about the gift. We're talking about the heart. We're not just talking about somebody who can speak eloquently. We're talking about somebody who loves the Lord God and speaks out of that heart. 
So you speak the word of God, and you serve with the power that God supplies. It's not according to your physical talents or your physical wealth. It's according to the spiritual wealth. It's according to the spiritual talents. We're talking about spiritual gifts here, not physical gifts. All right? So that's why this emphasis here on the extreme poverty and the abundance of joy in giving out of their affliction in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. But also come down to chapter 9, and I want you to look at verses 5 through 8 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writing about the collection for the Christians in Jerusalem, as the chapter title says in the ESV. Starting in verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. We don't have any taxes or church dues upon you as members in our church. We want willing gifts, not something that is an exaction. That's a good translation. I like that. It brings out that idea that it's, it's being forced upon you. I'm exacting this upon you. And so God operates spiritually through the gift of giving and through all Christians with a generous heart to not give out of a sense of I have to or people are watching or this is you know, uh, something that I'm compelled to do by any other outside force, but it just comes out of love for God and love for people. And Paul reiterates this throughout these chapters. These are great chapters on giving. Keep reading with me in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Notice verse 7. Each one, each one, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You just go to God with your heart and you say, God, what do you want me to do? And you listen and God puts on your heart what he wants you to do and, and that's what you do. You don't let other people know about it if they don't have to know about it. You're not trying to get your name published or your name written on any monument. But instead, you're just giving because you love God and you love the people that you're giving to. This is the cheerful heart of the giver. Now everybody gives, but not everybody has the gift of giving. There are some people in the church who will spend more time thinking about, praying about, and will have a more spiritually keen awareness of the needs of others and the desire to meet those needs. This is the way God has designed us. Some people are more this way than others, spiritually, our new man in our heart. Now, I have an interesting thought. Uh, maybe you'll find it interesting. It was interesting to me. What if my wife has the gift of giving? Right? There's an interesting passage I found in Luke chapter 8 that helped me think through, well, how does the gift of giving work in a household? If the, the man doesn't have the gift of giving, but the wife does, well, that could be interesting, especially if the husband is not a believer. Come with me to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Here in Luke chapter 8, you see, in the ministry of Jesus, there was a number of women who accompanied him and who were giving to support this mission. This is not a small mission that Jesus is accomplishing, okay? He's got himself, he's got 12 disciples. This is a team of 13. It's pretty expensive to have a team of 13 people traveling around doing ministry. You can ask the Todd Becker Foundation about the cost of having a group of people traveling around doing evangelistic work. 
So let's read it. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here are women of some apparently wealthy men who are traveling, at least some of them of of wealthy men, the the manager of Herod's household is an important person, who are providing for Jesus and his disciples out of their means. So if your wife has the gift of giving, let her give. Work together on it. uh, Make sure that you're being financially wise. But work together and enable the gifts that God has given Back to Romans chapter 12. The next gift on Paul's list, although we could say a lot more about giving, we could do a whole series of sermons on each one of these spiritual gifts, I suppose. The next one on the list, though, is the one who leads. Six out of the list of seven is the one who presides over, who rules over, who governs, who directs, or maintains the course direction of the church. This gift of leadership is one that is also associated with the office of elder. There's two gifts that are associated with the office of elder, that of teaching and that of leading. It's associated with elders in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. If I had more time, I'd love to show it to you, but you write it down and look it up later. And it's also associated with elders in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. They're not called elders in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, but it's pretty clear that's who he is referring to. And he uses this word, leadership, the one who presides, who leads, who governs a group. Now, you don't have to be an elder in the church in order to have the gift of leadership. You know, we've got some leaders in training this year in our Awana club. And when our teenagers are leading a group of kids who are younger than them, then they are exercising the ministry of leadership, whether they've got that spiritual gift or not. Because remember what I said, everybody does all of these ministries, just some people are going to focus in one area or the other. And so the leaders in training are learning how to lead. They're learning how to preside over a group. They're learning how to govern a group. And what happens on a small scale then equips you and empowers you to be able to to lead a bigger group, Uh, lead something that is maybe the whole church, and some of the leaders in training might be elders in the church someday, and they're getting their training as leaders in Awana. So don't think that just because this gift is associated with an office, that just the officers of the church have it. No, there's many ways in which people lead. Women lead women. You don't even have to be a man to have the gift of leadership. You just have to be in a position where you are organizing and administrating and leading the service of others. And we need that in all kinds of areas. Not just elders and board members, but thinking about like Christian school administrators, youth leaders, all kinds of opportunities to lead in the church. And what manner are the leaders supposed to lead in? What is the characteristic of godly leaders according to Romans chapter 12, verse 8? Well, the leader leads with zeal. This word zeal is a beautiful word. It's a, a word that is used in a number of places in the New Testament to indicate a willing heart, an earnest heart, a heart that is eager to get the work done. So you're not just a leader filling a position because it needs to be filled. 
you're not just a leader sitting on the elder board so that we can have an extra person sitting on the elder board, but instead, you're coming to the meeting, you're getting together with that idea of, I have a heart to lead us in the right direction. I've got a heart for the church to make progress. I've got a heart for disciples to be made, and I'm going to be zealous about putting work into leadership. So so often we find leaders who are reluctant leaders. They don't really want to be leaders, but, you know, the church needs a leader, and people have put their name forward, so they're like, all right, I guess I'm a leader. And the all right, I guess I'm a leader is not the leader with zeal. The leader with zeal is the person who says, I'm a leader, follow me, I'm going to take us in the right direction. And so we need people like that in the church. There's lots of servants in the church, but service needs to be organized. There needs to be leaders who are organizing the servants in the church in order to carry out the ministry of service, which is really what the office of deacon was all about, right? The office of deacon was there in order to organize the servants so that they can serve. So maybe the office of deacon, even though it's called a deacon, might be inhabited by people with the gift of leadership rather than the gift of service. So if you have the gift of leadership, don't wait for somebody to ask you to lead. Don't wait until there's a church vote appointing you to leadership. Just lead, and people will follow. Just lead. And lead with zeal. All right, the next one, the last one on the list. The one who shows mercy. The one who does acts of mercy. I like that translation. The one who does acts of mercy. Because what we're looking at here in this whole list is, is the action of the church. You know, I was a, a baseball and football card collector as a kid. And most of the baseball and football cards, you just have the picture of the athlete you know, smiling at the camera, holding a baseball bat or something like that. But then you know, some of the, the cards had inaction written on them. And so here's Bo Jackson in action, and he's hitting the ball, or he's catching the ball, he's, he's running and leaping. And so the church is supposed to be the church, not just smiling and looking good, it's supposed to be the church in action. And what are the actions that we are taking as a church? Well, it's these, these seven. The prophets have already done their work, but now we need to teach what the prophets have given to us. We need to serve with the power that God supplies. We need to be exhorting one another to live out what we've been taught and believe and know. We need to be giving, contributing to the work of the ministry. We need to be leading in the direction that God wants us to go. And we need to be doing acts of mercy. Acts of mercy. This is something that the New Testament points out on other occasions, that it's not enough just to say, you're in my thoughts and prayers. I mean, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with saying you're in my thoughts and prayers, as long as it's honest. But where's the action? Now, prayer is an action. I got you. I'm not downplaying the action of prayer. But the acts of mercy are meeting pressing needs. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Crete. He said, make sure that our people are not idle, but that they are acting to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Now, the gift of mercy is similar to the gift of giving or contributing because both of these people are meeting needs. The one who gives meets needs with money, and money solves all problems, right? If you've got the money, you can, you can hire anybody to do the action. But there are certain actions that are better done by people in the church than by hiring somebody to do it. And there are certain actions of mercy that are not just a money issue. Think about nursing home ministries and visiting shut-ins. You know, James chapter 1, verse 27 says, True and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. There are lonely people in the world. There are people in the world and there's people in the church who need interaction, 
They need friendship. We were not created to be isolated individuals living in solitary confinement. We were created to be a part of a family, to have friends. And you know, I like that name for Christians. There's one group of Christians that is called the Friends. And that's a great name for Christians. I'm not that fond of that group in particular because of doctrinal reasons, but I like the name, the Friends. You know, we're friends and people need friendship. Now, I'm not going to meet all of your needs for friendship because I'm not a very friendly person. But some of you are very friendly. And you've got to look for the people in the church who need friends and go and do acts of friendship. You know, the acts of mercy, you can maybe use the category friendship, just say acts of friendship. For those who need a friend. Ministry to the poor, ministry to the ill, the incapacitated, taking meals to new mothers, doing prison ministry, befriending those who don't have a lot of friends, and just spending time with them. Just spend time with people. This is a gift of mercy. Sometimes people don't need your money, they just need a friend, right? So this is the act of showing mercy. And when you're showing mercy, the Bible says, Paul says, you're supposed to do it with cheerfulness. You don't go as a miserable person, to help out miserable people. You've got to have some joy. You've got to have some hope. You've got to have something in your heart that is worth sharing in order to show mercy to those who are going through difficulty. Now, this doesn't mean you come in with a, a happy, happy, joy, joy, just look on the bright side of life type of triteness. No. But turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Come from Romans over to 1 Thessalonians. When people are grieving, when a loved one has died, you don't just come in with balloons and a happy song. That's that's not showing an act of mercy in that situation. A little bit later in Romans 12, Paul will say, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So there is a way where you've got to come in to the lives of those who are lonely and suffering and grieving and empathize with them. Don't just try to tell them a joke and get them to laugh. No, You're not a clown. You are a minister of Jesus Christ. And that's what people need. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want you to look there in verse 13. Brethren, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You're not going without hope when you go and minister to people. You're not going and saying, well, it could be worse. That's not hope. You're not going and saying, well, life stinks and we just have to live with it. No, you're going with a gospel. You're going with truth. You're going with a heart that is established on the truth. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You come down to verse 18, where after talking about the Lord's coming, which is our hope, He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here, the gift of encouragement, the act of showing mercy. You see how a lot of this has overlap. You could categorize gifts in different ways. You know, here in Romans chapter 12, the cheerfulness that God asks us to do when we're showing acts of mercy is also an attribute of the giver. As we looked in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 there says that that God loves a cheerful giver. So you give with a cheerful heart and you minister in mercy with a cheerful heart. These gifts are really closely related spiritually. Let's talk about our life 
as a church together here in our closing minutes before we participate in the Lord's table. I know life gets busy. I know that people can burn themselves out. I'm not asking you to burn yourself out, and I'm not asking you to to add more things to your schedule. All I'm doing is asking you to obey what Scripture says. You might have to rearrange some of your priorities. There might be some things that you're doing that you have to say no to in order to be able to say yes to Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. If you are involved in good things that are taking you away from ministering to the church of God according to the commandment of Scripture, you might have to give up some of those good things. You know, we're very rich. We're very blessed as a nation. We have so many good opportunities, so many good things to be involved with. My wife and I have to make so many decisions about, well, are the kids going to be involved in this good activity or this good activity or this good activity? Because there's just too many to be able to do them all. Well, that's, that's a good problem to have, but it is a problem, okay? It is a problem. And God will give you wisdom to put first things first. And what's first? Use your spiritual gift to build up the church. That's first. That's first. If other things have to fall off the list, other things fall off the list. But when you stand before God, he's going to evaluate you according to his commandment. Did you live your life as a holy sacrifice to me? You say, well, yes, in the general I did. Well, how about in the specific? Did you do it in the specific? And the first commandment I gave you, serve the church. What did you do for the body of Christ? Who in the church have you built up? Who in the church are you being a friend to? Who in the church have you taught? Who have you led? Who have you given to? What have you done for the ministry of Christ? And this is not a burdensome work. I'm not asking you to do something that is joyless or a drudgery or just another thing on the list. No, what I'm talking about here is being a co-worker of God. What I'm talking about here is being involved in the business that Jesus Christ is most concerned with, most interested in, and that he loves the most. And if you have the heart of Christ, as I believe you do, then I think you will find this work to be the most fulfilling, the most exciting, the most rewarding. The commandments of God are not a burden. They are a joy. Now, if you go home and you find that you're burdened, well then, like I said, there's probably some things that God has not called you to do that you're going to have to let go of so that you can do the things that God has called you to do. I want to tell you a story about a time when I was working as a young man. I was in college, and my dad was a general contractor building houses. There was a hailstorm, and all the houses in Lincoln got damaged, and so all the roofers were busy, and my dad was building a new house, and it needed to be roofed. And so he said, Tim, I could really use your help roofing this house. Now, I didn't know how to roof a house, and I didn't have any of the tools, but I thought, here, my dad needs some help, and it'll be a good opportunity for me to work with my dad. You know, that's the way it is in the church. God doesn't need you. You don't have the know-how or the tools, but he gives you the know-how. He gives you the tools. He gives you the doctrine. He gives you the spiritual gift, and he says, come work with me. Work with me. The value in this work is not just the benefit that it gives to other people in the church, but it's the value of working with your Heavenly Father alongside of Him. And when you work alongside God, you're going to find your relationship with God growing, deepening, strengthened, like my relationship with my dad was grown, strengthened, and deepened by working side by side with Him day after day, just putting shingles on the roof. 
It's not about the shingles on the roof. It's about the time with your Father. And that's the way it is in the church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for the diversity of people that you've brought to First Bible Church. I thank you also for the unity of mind that you've created among a people of, of different ages, from different areas, with different families, different backgrounds, different likes, different interests. Lord, you've united us together with a common purpose. You've given us truth. Lord, I thank you for creating a unity out of our diversity. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you will give us strength to fulfill our ministry. Lord, place a ministry upon our heart. Give us a zeal and a burden for the work that you have called us to do, the work that you've designed us to do, the work that you have enabled us to do, and so that we might be able to enjoy the satisfaction of building something that is going to last for eternity, the holy temple of God. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.